0: This is episode 145 of the Church Venture Northwest Podcast. We're continuing the 2016 Annual Enrichment Conference movement. This is session two with Mark Hankey. My name is Mark Hankey, and I work for NAte. He leads worship, and periodically I get to preach. Glad you're here this morning. It's been a lot of fun for me, honestly. It's a lot of emotions, actually. 36 years ago, this month, I was on this stage. I was at a Republican event. I was pre-enrolled at Lewis and Clark, wanted to be a politician. Republicans have come a long way, haven't they? We're in good shape. Dear God, save us. I'll let you read between the lines. In fact, I'll illuminate the lines for you. Dear God, save us. It was really, it's a fascinating place. 36 years ago, my grandmother lived just a block away and uh, she taught me a lot of lessons. Number one, is never given up on old people. She got saved when she was post 80 from our CB church here in town. So never give up on him. And she lived her last years just delightfully transformed by Jesus Christ. And uh, and so in one level, it's, it's fun to be back here. I haven't come back to Seaside a lot. It, Carrie and I, my wife and I grew up, she grew up just down the road in Tillamook. I grew up in Corvallis. We went on a little 24 year sabbatical to uh, Denver and uh, God has allowed us to come back, and it's really a glorious thing. And so uh, at one level, my roots are here, and yet um, seeing folks from Colorado, Rick and others, and Doug, um, is is like a convergence of my life. And so it's just a joy to be with you today. It truly is. It's a, a blessing to be here. Candidly, this topic scared me to death. Barriers to the gospel, fear, comfort, and materialism. I think I would have rather fear. It doesn't render as much guilt as materialism. Materialism is a little bit like preaching on humility. You just don't want to do it. Because you go home and you start evaluating everything. And so I went home and my wife, she said, what what do they want you to speak on? And I said, well, they want me to speak on materialism. So I said, honey, if we're gonna have any credibility at all, we have two couches, we gotta get rid of one. And and frankly, I think it's audacious of us to have two vehicles. Uh, let's keep the truck. I'll drive it. You walk. And a cell phone. I mean, two. Well, that's just being materialistic. Let's go down to one. Three and a half days. You get it. Three and a half days. I get it. She said, "I'm in." I said, why are you so excited about that? Because the three and a half days I get to answer the phone, it's your phone, and I will say things like this. Hello, Mark Hankey's other secretary by the name of Carrie, my assistant at church's name is Carrie, my wife's name is Carrie, our good friends Brian and and Carrie Robbins, their name is Carrie, my sister-in-law's name is Carrie, and my wife's grandmother's name is Carrie. So she would have just said, I'm one of the other Carries, Mark's unavailable, call another pastor that cares. She said, you will have all kinds of time off. My only redemptive thing in this whole thing of materialism is that I drive a 1997 Ford that has 180,000 miles. Surely I must not be a materialist, right? It's not quite that easy. It is, candidly, a frightening subject. Because if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, he talked a lot about material things. A good number of his parables, 16, by the way, of his 38 parables deals with the issue of money. He's the one who said you can only serve one master. It's either gonna be God or money. You're either gonna love God and use things or you're gonna love things and use God. You begin to evaluate your life and you begin to think, I live in opulence. Probably the poorest person in this room lives at a standard in the top 10% of the world. I've sat under professors who have lived in international zones and come back and had what I call kind of third world guilt. I didn't enjoy sitting under them. I felt guilty for everything I owned. It felt like my only answer in life was just to get rid of it all. I didn't know how to respond. Proverbs 28:20 20 says, "The one who is eager to get rich will not go unpunished." That's challenging for me, because when I left my home and I didn't go to George or to Lewis and Clark, I strangely, I don't even know how, God hijacked my life. I went to Oregon State. I enrolled in business because I grew up below the poverty line. I did not get above the poverty line until I was 30, some years of age. The reason is I graduated from seminary. Uh, made it out of there with little debt, praise God, but I was serving in the inner city and I was just happy to get a paycheck. But I lived in poverty. But uh, there was a time in my life where as I was raised in poverty and I went to Oregon State, I looked at all of the majors. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I said, business, that sounds like a lot of money. Accounting, that sounds like more money. That was my major. And that's literally how I signed up for it. I wanted to make a lot of money. I never wanted to be poor. I always wanted to be like Billy Johnson's dad who whenever I was with Billy Johnson's dad, he was the owner of a car dealership in town. Whenever he opened his wallet, he had $20 bills. I thought, who has that? I don't even have a wallet. (laughs) And every time Mr. Johnson opened up his wallet, he always just poured out these 20s. And I was like, I wanna be like him. I really did. And that's why I signed up to be a business major, not knowing at all that really what I was heading towards was punishment, because the person who is eager to get rich will not go unpunished. God spared me. He spared me and called me to be a pastor in the inner city where I unjoyfully served for years, not knowing I was a materialist in pastor's clothing. I commend our friends for choosing this topic as much as I'm scared of it. I'm scared of it because of its evaluation of my own life. I'm scared of it because the tendency to, to just throw all kinds of first world guilt upon you is, is so opportunistic in this moment. But I commend them, because I think it's a critical issue. Given the fact that um, where our treasure is, that is our retirement, there our denomination slightly will become. I can quote a Southern Baptist today. Bryant Wright, five years ago, he was then president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was speaking to his delegates, and he quotes, and I say this, he says, I believe that the number one idol within the lives of our people today is materialism. And if idolatry is our greatest threat, I remember one time watching, uh, it was a series of uh, talks um, And uh, Piper was there and Driscoll and a bunch of other people were there. And the question was this, what is the greatest threat to the evangelical community, the evangelical church in America moving forward? And all of these guys, Chandler and Driscoll, they all had these really, really good responses. And then Piper says, I suppose that the greatest threat to the American church is the greatest threat that has been to the people of God forever. And that is a high view of themselves and a low view of God, idolatry. I remember Driscoll saying, can I have my answer back? I like his. And if that's the case, then what we are talking today and tomorrow about is the barrier to the gospel moving forward at its most defined essence is idolatry. Our love of money, our love of things. Brian goes on to note, he says, And I understand that Southern Baptists are slightly underperforming compared to conservative Baptists, but um, Chris, I will pay you for that wherever you're at. He went on to point that 2.5, two and a half cents for every dollar given to their church was going into foreign missions. His summary of this is this. We clearly see that no matter how much our people profess that they love Jesus Christ In his mission, they love their money more. So as we look at materialism, I commend them. It is a needed subject. It is delicate. I want us to leave here not feeling the weight of guilt. But my prayer is the lift of the Holy Spirit to say, might we let the rivers of God's grace flow freely. How do we do that? I'll give you a simple outline that you can follow with me. It's not in your notes, you can just write it down. The challenge of materialism, the solution to materialism, and the freedom and the power that comes when we're released from it. The challenge of materialism, the solution to materialism, and the power that comes when we are freed from it. What is the challenge of materialism? Well, number one is where you and I live. We live where you walk into the grocery store and there are thousands and thousands of options of everything. You can walk in and there's, there's 15 different kinds of meats and cuts of meat. You go down the cereal aisle and there's all kinds of cereal. You go into one of uh, Carrie and I's favorite uh, dates used to be, uh, there was a Whole Foods store in Fort Collins when we used to live there. We would go there and I marveled one time and, and I said, honey, come over and take a look at this. Look at all of the different olives. I really don't even like olives. But look at all of the different olives and look at all the different mushrooms. And and we have them all. They're the legal kind. Um, Look at all of the different... I mean, we are a culture where we love choice. And in fact, I was asking one pastor one time, I said, why are you going to a second service? You're not that big. And, and, And he said, we're doing it because our culture loves choice. They literally launched... A worship service because our culture's passion for choice. No sooner did I get requested to speak on this subject, and I took off for a trip to Peru, and I went down, and and we were spending every day... In, in working with a very, very impoverished group of people. And I remember one man, I walked into his house, and his house was probably about 8 by 15, and there was a bed there, and, and the, the linens on it, I know they had not been changed in 10 years. It was so amazingly soiled, and his options of food every day were two items. But that wasn't just one home. We went home after home after home and we went into their grocery stores and their grocery stores were minuscule compared to ours. One of the challenges that we have in materialism is that we live in a culture that is opulent. It provides us so much. And the nation of Israel provides us with a great illustration. It is difficult to handle blessings they seem to be on this wonderful cycle of blessing, independence, idolatry, disaster. Repentance, blessing, independence, idolatry, disaster. At some level, I think it should actually frighten us to live in this country because it is very challenging to understand the concept of faith. When I was with a group of folks in a country and we were there meeting at night, they told me, said, when something breaks down in our country, we don't just go to the store. We don't just go to, the, to a mechanic and get things fixed. We've got to pray. And if God doesn't fix it, then it's not going to get fixed. Man, in my place, when the car breaks down, to be quite candid with you, I don't pray. I call AAA. I don't go, God, if my truck is ever going to run again, you're going to have to touch it. I don't. I call a mechanic, goes to our church, and I ask him for a good deal. It's called free. When you live in that world every day, you begin to swim in it, and you realize how many things in our day, because we live in opulence, we don't pray about. We don't go to the grocery store and say, oh God, I hope it's open today and not shut down by a civil war. God, I hope there's water in the well when I go there. As we walked around in Peru and people would would be walking and and the little eight-year-old kids, I did not send my kids out at eight years of age to walk a mile to get water, to bring it back by 6 a.m. so that we could have breakfast. I just didn't do that. If I would have done that, it's called child abuse in America and somebody would have turned me in. One of the challenges is that we live in opulence. Another one of the challenges, I think, is that we don't know how to respond to material goods and so sometimes we tend to react the opposite and we begin to see material things as evil. And we say, the only way I can respond is, is if I completely divest myself, which we saw church history do over the years. We call it asceticism, where they begin to think things, having things is evil. You, you see it all over the place. For those of us who lived in Denver, we know Cherry Hills Community Church. It's a large church, 6, 10, 12,000. I don't know how big it is, it's big. And it's in a community that is one of the richest communities in the United States. I think at the time when we used to live there, Cherry Hills was the richest city per capita in the United States. And so one day, bombastic, beautiful, wonderful Tony Campolo comes and speaks at this church. And I went simply because I knew it was going to be fun. I mean, you just got to watch Tony go into a place like this and know that at the end of the day, man, fur is going to fly. And so Tony gets up there and does his normal thing, and he says, as he's preaching, and I don't even know what the topic was, I just remember this one moment, and he goes, would Jesus Christ drive a BMW? And in Tony Compolo fashion, I won't even repeat what he says. Blank no, he wouldn't. Cherry Hills, there were 150 BMWs out in the parking lot. But you know what he was actually communicating? He was communicating a form of asceticism and he didn't even realize it. Because he says, you know what, to own a BMW is sinful. Now you can go out there and have an F-350 with two bales of hay in it, and you're not a materialist, you're a farmer making America great. But that truck costs more than probably the BMW. And so we get all weird about materialism and we begin to get embarrassed. And, and, and it doesn't take much. I remember I was driving a Chevy one time, uh, God forgave me, and, and I drove through the bank and, and it was a long truck. I mean, I got it at 70,000 miles. And I started talking this way all the time. Why? Because as a pastor, you're not supposed to have anything. You're supposed to be just grateful for the biscuits and gravy that we eat. And I drove through the the deposit and and I went up there and uh, lo and behold, one of the ladies in our church worked at this bank, I didn't know. And she said, of all things, is that your truck? No, I stole it. (laughs) Is that your truck? And I said, well, yes. And this is what she said, we pay you too much. Do you know how many more times when I introduced my truck, I said, I bought this truck, 70,000 miles on it, I got a really good deal. I was living the lie of asceticism. To have it is evil. And so I have to explain how good a deal I got on it. I was afraid. That's what makes this whole thing of materialism really challenging because we want to do with materialism what we did with the ladies dress years ago and we measured at the door when you walked in and we told you whether or not you were modest. And we want to figure out the same thing with materialism. Let me give you a definition. It is a challenge. I think materialism is simply this, a preoccupation with material things. Jesus says, do not define your life by what you possess. It is the willingness or the commitment that my life is defined by what I own. Now, let me hurt just a little bit. In my early years, I said I was a materialist, and I really was. You know what I defined my life by? You know it. I'm among friends the size of my church. And the size of my church wasn't all that large. I was in the inner city. And so I would find myself getting on an airplane and somebody would say, what do you do? And if I felt really kind of good about myself, I said I was a pastor. If I didn't feel very good about myself, I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm a professor at Denver Seminary. Why? Because one was esteeming and the other, well, it was embarrassing because they always seemed to get around to that nasty little question. How big is your church? Oh, it's huge. It's huge by inner city qualities, inner city standards. You see, I really was a materialist. What is a materialist? It's a person who's preoccupied with the material things, with size, with what I own. And it begins to affect us in three critical areas. Number one, it determines the things that I really trust. It determines the things that I long for, that I trust in, things that define me. It actually also, materialism determines the things that I focus on. The story is of a young American guy who found $5 on the sidewalk one day and he made the commitment, I will forever walk looking for more money. In his lifetime, the story unfolds that he found 29,000 buttons, 54,000 pins, 12 cents, a bent back and a miserly disposition. What did he miss? He missed the faces of people. That's the challenge of materialism. It begins to get a grip on you and you begin to obsess over it. It begins to define you and it begins to shape you and you begin to think about your life based upon those things that you possess. It focuses your attention and it lures you to define your desires. It's called covetousness. and you begin to think about your life, if I have this, then I will be happy. If this happens in our church, then I will feel good. If this happens in our life, then I will know God is with me. That's the thinking of a materialist that is really saying, I love things and I use God. What are the results of materialism? Two things. Probably we could list five. Number one, it lies. It lies. I used to think when my church was 100 and it reached 200, I would be happy. It lied. I used to think when it was 200 and it got to be 400, I would feel successful. Materialism lied. I used to think that when I had $20 bills in my pocket, I've actually never gotten there. My wife keeps all the money. (laughs) Greed lies. It's like the broken cisterns of Jeremiah where Jeremiah says, my people have committed two sins. They've turned away from me and they've dug broken cisterns. And greed is a broken cistern that you just keep digging and digging and digging. And when you dig the well and it doesn't hold water, you go over and you dig another well and you keep trying to find those things in life that will satiate you so that you feel good about yourself. Greed lies to us and greed blinds us. It blinds us to spiritual realities. In my early years of ministry, I really didn't enjoy people. I was scared of them because they had the power to leave my church and if they left my church, I would somehow be devastated by that moment because I did not see them as people to be loved. I saw them as, what, congregants to affirm my life. I remember crashing in 1993, really didn't like the church, scared to death of God. And I didn't like people at all. And the only thing that kept me from resigning is I was just frankly afraid that God would be ticked at me the rest of my life. I went to a counselor. I didn't know where else to go. And I sat down and he said, what's the problem? I said, I am married to 250 women and I cannot keep one of them happy. And by the way, I'm afraid all of them are having an affair. And every time somebody new comes into the church, I feel like God is saying, date that one. I was a materialist. My material was not a truck, it was people. My focus was defining my life. Be careful, what God says. Guard your heart. Why? Because from that place, you will either believe lies it will blind you. The challenge of materialism is that it can destroy you. I actually think materialism and idolatry is what probably drives most pastors out of the ministry. It's because they've never really identified that their value is coming from something other than Christ. And they can't live with it. And I don't know why God spared me. I truly don't but I was so steeped and buried in it. It was a miracle, and I can't fully tell you how I got here. But I can, from Scripture, I believe, tell you the solution to materialism. The challenge of it, we live in it. And we spiritualize it as pastors because we may not have a lot of things, but we can turn people into things as easily as anyone I know. The solution to materialism is not asceticism, it's stewardship. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And I want to follow a story. We'll focus on just a few verses. Let me read them for us. In Acts chapter 4, I will start in verse 32. And we will spend most of our time there. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. Much grace flowed through them. That's called a movement. Movement. It's a movement of God's grace. And how do we unleash a movement? How do we overcome the barrier of materialism and unleash this movement of the power of Christ? There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales of them and put it at the apostles' feet of all strange things, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Joseph... One of the great examples of this, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles renamed Barnabas, which means encouraging one, he sold a field one time, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. What unleashes a barrier of materialism? It's stewardship. What does stewardship deal with? Two things, ownership and love. You notice what it says? None of them looked at their possessions as their own. It's called ownership. It's the most radical, socialistic, Christian movement you can ever imagine. Not government-driven, spirit-driven. It is not my stuff. This is not my church. This is not our gig. This is God's. And in the words of Eugene Peterson in his wonderful book, Contemplative Pastor, he says, whenever you enter into anything, the prevening grace of God has gone before you. And there is a story that God is writing in this movement, in your church, in your life, that God began long before you ever showed up on the scene. And it is not your responsibility to get something going. It is not your initiative. It is God's initiative. It is the issue of ownership. And what I believe unleashed this movement and this church was a conviction that they had a unity over. Do you notice what he says? All the believers were one in heart and mind. About what? Seems to me that the context leads you to the next point. About what? This is not our story. This is not our stuff. This is God's story. This is, these are God's things. This is God's church. And God began to write a story in the Northwest long before you and I ever showed up. And God has a vision. And God is writing that vision. And the only way I am going to unleash the flow of God's grace, is if I can daily deal with the issue that, Lord, everything that I own is yours. When I was in Denver, I was in the inner city, and my family, for the first time in our lives, we were minorities, and I had no idea. I grew up in Corvallis. I had three black friends. That was it. The only three black guys that went to our school. And they were all very, very athletic. They all played uh, professional sports, and and uh, were from very affluent families and then i moved into an area where um we were minorities and uh, the odds of a church transitioning in that kind of context you had a one in seven chance of making it so i reached out to anyone that could help me because i had no clue what to do one of the individuals that came along was a gentleman by the name of john perkins who was the founder of mental hall ministries and for whatever reason, John looked at me, I think he felt pity. And he says, hey, how about if I give you a half a day to walk around your church and your city and your, your neighborhood and I'll help you think. And he told me a story when we were there together. He says, you know, a lot of people used to tell us that um, you, you can either give a man a fish or you can teach him how to fish. And I said, yeah, I know that. So what you're going to try and teach me how to do is teach me how to fish. He said, no. It has nothing to do with giving the man a fish or teaching the man how to fish. I said, well, what it has to do with? He goes, it has to do with who owns the lake. Who owns this lake? Do you think God owns this lake? Do you think God owns this region? Do you think God has a vision for this region? because you're acting as if this thing is all up to you. You have to teach the leaders and you have to find them. The question is, Mark, does God own this? That's the real question, it's ownership. Do I walk into Salem First Baptist Church that's been around for 150 some years? And do I see it as a place that needs the initiative of my leadership, or do I see it as a story that God has been writing that he has asked me to be a part of? It has to do with ownership. Do I feel the responsibility to get something going, or do I... Understand that the only thing that will truly unleash the movement of God's power is if I crucify my passion to control and own and I recognize every day that everything I have is God's, including this church. Stewardship has to do with ownership and it also has to do with love. Jesus is the one who said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one or love the other. The reason why I think that I was scared to death of people early on in ministry is because they had the power to leave. Thus they had the power to define. And if they have the power to define me, they become very, very fragile in my mind. But God, if I really love you, and people won't have that power. And I began to look at it, and God said to me one day, not audible, but it was really, really close. He said this, Mark, if you treated your wife like you treat me, she would divorce you. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, the only time you talk to me is when you want me to do your thing. The only time you're interested in me is when you have an agenda for me. He said, if you treated Carrie that way, if every time you talked with Carrie, it was, would you do this? Have you done this? Would you do this? Would you protect this? Would you iron this? And and you never had time where you just looked her in the eye and said, man, you are really just drop dead gorgeous. Or let's go for a walk and, and, and let's just talk about what we're enjoying. If you treated your wife like you treat me, why did I treat God that way? Because I loved things and I used God. And I read a very, very helpful book by James Houston. It's called The Transforming Friendship. It changed my life. It truly did. Not many books have. I read them, can't figure out at all what the guy was saying or gal, but this one changed me because it completely reoriented my relationship to God. It's not that I don't ask him for things. It's that I recognized that the solution to materialism is to fall in love with God and not use him the rest of my life and not try and figure out how to get my prayer life so manufactured and so... uh, uh, oiled that i could just get god to do the things that i wanted and i began to be interested in god what do you think about this situation god how do you view these people and lord what would you like to do in this city and and lord what is your agenda for today and most importantly is father what do you think about me today I began to become enamored with the language of the Father to Jesus Christ. I began to be infatuated with the ways that they spoke about each other. And I began to realize I don't have that kind of relationship with God at all. I used him. He was nothing more than an electrical plug in the wall. That I asked him to do my bidding because I was a materialist. And I discovered that the solution is not the absence of things, but a recalibration of ownership and the admittance that I didn't love God at all. He was a power to be used, not a person to be loved. What happens, possessors become selfish, Focused on their own thing. Threatened when God doesn't play. What unleashed this church? No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. You can go home and sell everything that you have and you'll still be a materialist. You can go sell your BMW and drive an Accord and people will think you're not a materialist, but you still might be one. You can go get rid of your Escalade and go drive a VW Bug, and you still could be a materialist. Because the question is not what you own, it's who owns it. Does God own my church? Does he own my life? Does he own my children? And am I in love with the Father and truly affectionately in love with the God who created me and calls me his son and delights in me and sings over me and longs, longs to bless me beyond anything of the prayer of a materialist. What happens when we deal with the that crucible of ownership. We experience the power of grace. I don't think it's an accident at all. I think it is a logical flow. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything that they had. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because stewards validate the power of the gospel as they learn to give. What happened, I think, is the Barnabas came along and he said to them, "Hey guys, God's given me some money and I want to give it to you." Now Barnabas is an interesting guy. Look at it. His name is Joseph. Where is he from? Well, says that he's a Levite. What does that mean? It means that he should have been an attendant in the Or in the uh, in the priesthood, he should have been in the temple. Should have been a gatekeeper. Should have been a worship leader. The problem was, is he was from Cyprus, therefore he was a Hellenist, and therefore he couldn't serve. It wouldn't let him serve because he was considered a foreigner probably didn't know Aramaic, and he wasn't received. And so though by blood he was a Levite, by practice he was never allowed to serve in the temple. You would think that, well, wait a minute, man, this is my family, I should be able to be serving here. But that didn't stop him. He came in, and he was actually the first recorded donor to the church. And he comes and he says twice in this text, very short text, They sold things and they laid it at the apostles' feet. What was the effect? Same effect that I had one time in my life. We were just launching a $3 million building program. God was doing some great things in our church. It was amazing. And then of all strange things, On the Monday after we broke ground, there was a gentleman that came to us, our neighbor, and he goes, I'd like to sell you all of the duplexes. And I said, this is a horrible time. We just committed to a $3 million building program and we just turned up the dirt yesterday. I was actually just playing the guy, kind of making sure that he knew we didn't have a lot of money. But I went to our elders and I said, what do you think of this? And they said, this is a horrible time. I said, that's exactly what I thought. But in our prayer, we discovered that we're not going to say no for God or for the congregation. We're going to let them vote. And so that we just started this huge project. We went to the church the very next Sunday, and we cast this vision. God, I think, has given us an opportunity to buy this, these duplexes. And we laid out the vision. We wanted to do a counseling center for the, for the poor. We wanted to do an internship home, and we wanted to do a home for unwed mothers. And we had a number of visions in this place. And we told the congregation that in the next two months, if God raises the money, we'll negotiate the price and we will buy it but we, have no, we just have no vision in our heart or, or no desire in our heart to obligate us as a church to buy this. We really believe that we want God to speak through you. There was a gentleman who walked up to me afterwards and he said, I love the vision, Pastor. And he handed me a check and I said to Earl, I said, Earl, we're not asking for checks. We're just asking for pledges if you believe this is God's leading. And, and we needed to raise, I think it was like a half a million dollars in about two months. And he comes up and he goes, oh, God's gonna do it. I know, just take my check, would you? You don't have to ask me twice, I'll take checks. I took the check and I went into my office in between services and I opened the check. I'm not a fundraiser, I'm a horrible fundraiser. I don't even like it. And I was looking at a check for $110,000. Who can write a check for $110,000? I have struggled some days, $110. And I took it to the elders and I said, look at this. And in that moment, something happened within us. We began to believe God. It wasn't about my friend Earl, it was about God. We began to believe that all things are possible with God. Even though we launched this huge building program, What we began to see is through the stewardship of people that God has resources we never imagined. We raised all of the money in four weeks. Something happened in our church, friends. That was a season we had not seen hardly anyone come to Christ in that church for four years. We were slugging it out. We lost 50% of our entire leadership team in the first year of my ministry there to moral failure. That's half of the elders, half of the staff, and half of a revitalization team. We lost 50% of them. It was an absolute bloodbath. We hated elder meetings because we were afraid somebody else's sin was gonna come out. But there was a moment in our church's life where we began to believe God. And you know what helped us? A 78-year-old man walking down and handing me a check and he goes, I believe God's in this. And when you believe God is in something, it gives you a power to preach and a faith to believe in and, and, and a God that, and, and why? Because stewards validate the power of the gospel when they come and they say, here's my property. I trust and believe what God is doing. Here's my home, use it. Bring the college ministry in. Here's our life, here's our resources. And all of a sudden, it wasn't about the money, it was about believing that God was in this story and stewards do that for you. And that's how you break Materialism is that you understand that God owns this and God may be doing something among our church that is beyond what we can orchestrate, but it's actually him doing it. Stewards not only validate the power of the gospel, but they also empower people because of their high levels of trust. Barnabas comes and he lays all of his money at the apostles' feet. It seems to me that God really wanted them to get this one because he said it twice. Why was this strange? Because materialists have a lot of strings attached to their money. They'll come to you and say, I'll give you money, but this is how you have to use it. They'll come to you and say, you know what, I want to write the church into the trust, but this is how you have to use it. Stewards come, and they say, I trust our elders. I trust our leaders. And I want you to have the freedom to respond as God leads you here. What happens when you live that way? You live that way not just with your resources. You live that way with people. If you follow the story of Barnabas, it was Barnabas that encountered the apostle Paul and bridged the gap between Paul and the other disciples that were afraid of Paul. Why? Because Barnabas trusted Paul. If you follow the story, it was Barnabas who was taking the lead when they left Antioch. It said Barnabas and Paul were sent out of Antioch. But later, just one chapter later, that was in 13 and 14, it reverses that in an Iconium. It says Paul and Barnabas, We're leading the ministry. Why? Because Barnabas didn't care who got the credit. He just simply cared about the movement of God. He wasn't a possessor of his title. He wasn't a possessor of his position because he wasn't a possessor of his property. Why? Because God owns it. And if God, you want Paul to take the lead, that's fine. As long as the gospel gets advanced. How do you break materialism? So you deal with the issue of ownership and you deal with the issue of love. What is it that I own and who is it that I love? And when you deal with that, and when you lead your congregation to deal with that, what will happen is the stewards will begin to show up and they will give you their homes and they will give you their resources, and it will inspire a congregation to have faith. And when a congregation has faith, they are absolutely unstoppable. There is not a power in this world of the demonic realm or of anything in the Northwest that is able to stop a congregation that says, God, this is your church. Our resources are your resources. Our lives are your lives. Our positions are your positions. We don't care who gets the credit. As long as God, the advancing kingdom, moves forward in this city. That's how you break materialism. And you call your congregation to say, give it up. Give up your facility. Last year, we had over 37,000 foot trafficked people 37,000 people that came through the doors of our church, non-Sunday, non-Wednesday. Why? Because we don't own our facility. God does. And so we give it away to another church on Sunday afternoon and we give it away to other people who come in and use it and we open it up to city events, we open it up to Homeless Connect and we open it up to virtually anything we can. Why? Because a facility sitting there all by itself, beautiful and wonderful, is useless. God owns it. And if God owns it, then he can use it. In our family, if we have an extra bedroom, it's a sin. And so we go out and look for people to come and live with us. And over the years, we've had 24 different foster kids or parents or people live with us. I came home one day. In in my wife and I's relationship, it goes very simply like this. If we see a person who has a need and we have an extra bedroom, the answer is yes. The other person can just deal with it when they get home. So I came home one day and there was a gal sitting on our uh, couch and I said, hi, my name is Mark. And she said, my name is Karen. And I said, well, I live here. Who are you? She goes, I live here too. I just moved in. And I said, well, great. Where did my wife find you? She goes, well, I was prostituting down on the street and she picked me up. And I said, better her than me. (laughs) Infinitely better her than me. As we began to unfold Karen's life, she was a prostitute, she was a witch, and one day I came home, and she had sliced herself up at virtually every level, and her entire bedroom was filled with a complete bloodbath, not the kind of thing you want your kids to see. And I came in, and I said, what on earth are you doing? And she goes, my cat is sick, and so I am praying to the white witches to heal my cat. I said, white witches, you're praying to Satan. No, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. You're either praying to God or you're praying to Satan. And I don't think God requires blood sacrifices. And she goes, I'm not praying to the devil. I am praying to white power. And I said, you're praying to the devil. And I'm going to pray to God. And I'm going to pray that God kills your cat. So that you understand that God is almighty. Her cat was dead within 24 hours. She was saved within 48 hours. She lives in Tennessee today. She's married. She's a delightful daughter. Engaged in her church. Why? Because our home is not our own. It's God's. Because our church is not our own, it's God's. And because our life is not our own, it's God's. And when you live with the issue of ownership and love, what happens? With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace flowed through them. That's a movement. I can imagine the day that Barnabas died. I don't know if they had a funeral, but have you ever been to funerals where people speak a good word? It's called a eulogy. If you allow me just a little bit of creativity and license in this, I can imagine that the Apostle Paul maybe came to that day. And he said, you guys know me as the Apostle Paul. I'm the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament under the inspiration of God. But I gotta tell you, there was a day that not even one of the apostles would speak to me the only person that would put his arm around me was a guy by the name of Barnabas. He risked his reputation. He risked his life. And he trusted me. Were it not for Barnabas, I wouldn't be here. And after Paul spoke, a young guy by the name of John Mark got up and he said, all my life I've been a quitter. Everything I've started, I've quit. I was a disappointment to a man I looked up to. His name was Paul. And in fact, even Paul quit on me. And he quit on me because I'd quit on myself and I'd quit on everything. But there was one guy, and in fact, he risked everything. He risked his relationship with his best friend. And he put his arm around me and said, if you stay with me, I'm gonna help you finish. One of the happiest days of my life is under the inspiration of God, I finished the gospel of Mark, were it not for Barnabas, I wouldn't have been here, see stewards have that kind of power, because when you live, not with your stuff, but with God's, you unleash the grace of God in a way that it brings transformation. One of our teams went out in our city and they were knocking on doors. And, and And I know, I mean, cold turkey evangelism is just ridiculous. And it's stupid. It just happens to work periodically. <clears throat> so they went up to this home and they knocked on the door. And this lady comes bolting out of the door. This was just last December. She comes bolting out of the door. What do you want? And they're like, can we talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ? And she goes, oh, I thought you were my ex-boyfriend. His suitcase was sitting on the front porch. She just kicked him out. They walked in. She, in that day, trusted Christ. She came to church. She started coming to our church. She came to every service. She went to Saturday night. She went to Sunday morning twice. She went to Sunday evening. And finally, I came up to her. I said, Kristen, you come to church all the time. She goes, I know. I need it. I said, you come to church more than I do. she had some real financial problems and somehow somebody in our church found out about it and so I had an envelope on my desk one day and it just had money for the young lady who just kicked her boyfriend out of the house, this is for her. Oh, I think I knew who that is. So I said to Jim, I said, Jim, you, you're the one who led her to Christ. Why don't you take this over to her? And so he took it over to her and he knocked on the door and he goes, this is a message from God. Here, We want to give this to you. And she goes, what is it? And he goes, well, I, somebody believed that God wanted to give you something because you might need it. She opened it up and she just fell, literally fell to her knees and began to weep. And she said this, God hears me. God hears me. Do you know what I prayed this morning? God, I have no money. And if you hear me, please, can you help me? And she was just so excited. God hears me. And she thought it was $100. And she opened the envelope, and it was $400. And she said, God really hears me. Oh, it was awesome. Three weeks later, she's sitting in the service. I walk up to her and I said, Kristen, you have a very heavy heart today. What's wrong? She said, my nephew was murdered last night. He was in a gang. and They shared the gospel and he wouldn't trust Christ and he wouldn't get out. I said, Kristen, are you going to make it? She said, if I would have gotten this news in November, I think it would take my life today, I'm going to make it. Because there was a lady in our church who three years ago was in a horrific, abusive relationship. And she trusted Christ. And she honored God. And she began to walk with him. And she understood that her life was not her own. And three years later she puts $400 on my desk to go to Kristen so that Kristen might understand that God hears her. How do you release a movement? You rescue people from materialism. Because when God owns it all, grace flows. When God owns my life, grace flows. And when God owns your church, grace flows. And nothing, nothing can stop it. Lord Jesus, let your power flow through these churches. And do in these churches, God, what you've done in Christian's life. May every one of them believe you hear us. You're mighty, you're powerful, and your grace doesn't stop with us. It flows through us. And it creates a movement that goes from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Antioch around the world, from Seaside to Shehalis, from Chehalis to Le Grand, from La Grande to Klamath Falls. May we rewrite the story of the gospel in this region because grace flows through stewards. Amen.